You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, let me try a statement on you and see how you might relate to it this evening. Life tomorrow is never determined by the limitations of your life today. Life tomorrow is never determined by the limitations of your life today. If you can accept that statement somehow, you're growing in hope. And it, it, that statement comes to me because of the story of Abram. And we're going to share that story tonight, begins tonight, his call. Uh, so I want to invite you to open up a Bible, please, to Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Uh, that's on page 8. If you didn't bring a Bible, no sweat. Grab the black book in the rack in front of you and uh, turn to page 8. There you find uh, the first mention of Abram. And by the way, his name's Abram at the beginning of the story. God will change his name to Abraham. So it's the same guy, but just a different name. Here we are, early days. Um, here's what I'd like to do. I want, I, want, I want you to sit, remain seated, and I'm going to read most of this text. But if you would, I would invite you to read with me God's part. I'd like you to be God as we read this text. We'll do it interactively, okay? So your part's going to come in chapter 12, verse 1. There's a little paragraph there. That's yours. Let's read that part aloud together, and then I'll finish us off. Remember, as we read this, we're reading God's Word. So when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord, and if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen closely. We're reading God's Holy Word. Now, these are the descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram. Nahor and Haran. And Haran was the father of Lot. Now Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, here comes your part. The Lord said to Abram, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This is the word of the Lord. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Now, if you're familiar with Abraham, you likely have heard this story. It's a very famous passage in the Old Testament, wonderful passage. Um, but even still, what you might not have known is that this is really two stories put together. It's, 
It's not just a story of Abraham, is it? It's also the story of Terah, his father. If we were to call this the calling of Abram, I think we could also call this the stalling of Terah. Because what we discover is that in this ancient city of Haran, there are two men who are both facing an uncertain future, and they orient themselves to that future in very different ways. Two different ways of facing the future. One with hope, and the other with despair. So let's look at this uh, together. Those last few verses of chapter 11 are a classic Hebrew narrative, beautifully spare. They say more with what they leave out than what they articulate. It's really just a list of names, isn't it? Man, his three boys, and they get married. And then notice the things that are inserted into that list of names are tragic. Uh, Haran dies. Child dies. And then Sarah, the daughter-in-law, is barren. She, her womb is closed. She has no child, cannot have a child. Now, for us, obviously, losing a child, they say, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, pain that anybody can go through. It's a big deal. Not being able to have a child, uh, the struggle of infertility, many of us understand that. That's a big deal. But even more so in the ancient world, where not to have a child is not to have a future. It's not to have a future. These have both been cut off, these two men, from their future. I think it's so interesting that the story of God's people begins in this way. This is a family that's facing limitations. Both of their lives have been fenced off by limitations, broken dreams, heartache, pain, and disappointment. That's what we, if we read carefully, that's what we're noticing here. And I think that's so interesting because we know all about families with limitations, don't we? I know my family has many limitations. Many of us here are very familiar with infertility. We'd love to be able to have a child. We'd love to be able to have a spouse and have a child. Many of us here understand what it's like to lose someone who's loved in a family, a child or a parent or a brother. That all happens here. Many of us here know what it's like to live in a family that is struggling even to care for one another, communicate well, to live in a family where somebody has mental illness or where there's sickness, where somebody uh, wanders away, can't be found. We know what it's like even to live in no family at all. And there are a lot of limitations in our lives. So isn't it wonderful in a way, as much pain as there is here, that we can recognize ourselves in this and that God wants us to know, I am the God whose love is never limited by the limitations in your life. My love for you, God is saying, is not contingent upon how great you are, how smoothly things are going. I am the God who breaks into brokenness with blessing. I want you to catch that right at the very beginning of the story. The question here will be, though, what do these two guys do with that promise that God gives? This is the, the one who says, that, you know, so there are these two men, but then the third character in the story really is the great character, the great character of our lives as well, the Lord and he breaks into this narrative in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord, now the Lord said to Abram, I will bless you. So let's just take a second and step aside for a moment and think about the word blessing. Because it's so bizarre. We hardly ever use the word blessing, right? If you ever say something like, bless you, what just happened? There was somebody, somebody sneezed. I like to say gesundheit. Because I don't know what either of those things mean, right? And so it's like feels very biblical, I guess. I don't know what I don't know what does it mean to say bless you to somebody. What is a blessing? 
Well, here's the Hebrew word for blessing comes from the Hebrew word for knees. You know, does that help? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure. But there's some speculation around this that, that, that maybe the reason for that was that blessing was fundamentally a parental function. See, that a parent would say to her daughter, I bless you. And she'd do so by setting the child on her knees. Maybe a euphemism for lap. Um, or maybe a, a father who was going to bless his children would call them to his knees, like Isaac does with Jacob and Esau, lay his hands on their heads and then bless them. But what is the blessing itself? I want to suggest that there are two aspects to a biblical blessing. And the first is the source of the blessing. The source of the blessing in the Bible is heaven. It's as though the parent is saying, I, want, I pray that heaven would open over the life of this child. The heavens themselves would open. The second aspect of this blessing is promise. The source is heaven. The promise is what we pray that heaven will do in that child's life as she grows, as she lives her life. That the promise of heaven would be engaged in the day-to-day living of this life. That she would be given, literally, a future that can only come from heaven as she lives on earth. An example of this kind of blessing is in number six, the blessing God gives Aaron He's told to raise his hands over Israel and say, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God is saying, you can say that to my people, Aaron. You can look to heaven and raise your hands and you can say, May heaven be opened on these beloved people and may they live every day of their life with the promise of God fully engaged. That's a, that's a blessing. Now you can see... Why it is that Jacob and Esau fought, literally fought, over a blessing? Because they wanted a future. They're like you and me. They want to have a future. And this is how they got it. So isn't it interesting now that God himself says to Abram, I bless you. I bless you. So that's the backstory. But let's now consider these two men as they stand in the city of Haran. How'd they get there and where are they going? Let me show you a map for this. Would you guys put that? Okay, so you probably can't read the uh, words on this, but if you look in the lower right-hand corner over here, this is Ur of the Chaldees. This is the birthplace of this family, uh, way off here near modern-day Basra in uh, what we call Iraq. This is Mesopotamia at the time. And um, on the other side, over here in the lower left-hand corner, you see Canaan, right between the Lake Sea of Galilee, the little blue patch there, and then the Dead Sea below that. That's Canaan. Uh, they're starting in Ur, they're going to end up in Canaan, but they find themselves in Haran, which is the apex of this. That's the turning point. When you start to go left from Haran, you go down the King's Highway, you head southwest, you're leaving your country behind. Haran and Ur were two centers of moon worship. This family, they were not believers in, in God. They were believers in a moon worship. All the names are moon name God names in this thing. So here's what happens. These two men are standing there. One will die in Haran. The other will go on. What's the difference? Well, it has to do with what they're holding on to. Abram is holding on to a promise. God had said to Abram, uh, I will bless you. God makes a promise to Abram. And he doesn't tell Abram where he will be going. He just says, I want you to leave. I want you to leave behind. 
your country, your people, your father's house. Go to the place that I will show you. He's got a promise not to end up at a certain destination, but to, to have a certain traveling companion. Promise. On the other hand, Terah has uh, a, oh, gosh, it's another P word. Let me look at my notes. Prospect. That was a, um, he has a prospect. That is to say, he's got a place he's planning to go. I don't know if you noticed uh, when I was reading that Terah, Abram's father, is planning to go to Cana. Now, Canaan is where Abraham's going to end up also. That's the place that God will show him. But God hasn't told Abram that he's going to Canaan. And and so I don't know why Terah thinks he's going to Canaan, except that he thinks maybe there'll be a better prospect there. His life has been circumscribed by limitations. It's been a hard life. Maybe if I get out of this place, maybe if I go to some other... I hear that things are pretty good over in Canaan, so I'll go there. So he's not operating so much with the promise that Abraham's operating with. He's holding on to a prospect. You know, I wish I could get to Canaan. What we find in Haran is that it's not enough. Having a prospect is not enough. Did you see what happens here? We read in verse 31, towards the bottom of the verse, that they settle. Haran settles in Haran. And then we read in the next verse that... Terah dies in Haran. Now, what does this mean? A lot of people make a connection here, particularly English readers, because they say, hey, isn't that city got the same name that the dead boy has? Isn't that the same? Well, it appears that the same the way it's transliterated, but actually in Hebrew, they're two different, they're, they're two different spellings. But I think the similarity is actually instructive because my thinking is that for whatever reason, Haran couldn't make it out of the country uh, in which he experienced all this pain and suffering. He, he ended up settling in his limitations. He, he never could escape the idea that his life would be destined to be what it had always been. His past became prologue for his future. And he could never dream, really, although he had this prospect. He, he could never quite step over because it was still an uncertain prospect. And so he settles in his pain. He settles in his disappointment. He settles in this city. Now, I think we do the same thing. I think you and I settle as well. To settle in Haran today for us is to let our life tomorrow be determined by the limitations of our lives today. And I think we do it all the time. In school, uh, you take a math class, and maybe at the beginning of the semester, you don't do so hot on a test. Maybe you fail the test. And, but it's so easy to say to yourself at that point, you know what, I guess I'm just not good at math. You know, that's all the other people. And so you avoid the subject. At work, uh, you get a great new job. You're going to work really hard out and impress everyone. You burn the midnight oil. and But for some reason... You don't get recognized for that hard work, and you're passed over for the promotion, and pretty soon you say, I don't know if it's worth it. I'm just going to distance myself, and maybe I just won't care so much about this job and mail it in. Maybe at church you had a bad experience, and people didn't really care for people, and it turned you off, and maybe even hurt you, and you said, you know what, I guess this whole Jesus thing isn't really for me. Maybe you have a grandmother, a mother, an aunt, a sister who all died of cancer, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, the writing is on the wall, and it just kind of colors your attitude towards life. You see, all of that is a way of settling. Many of us are children of divorce, 
and we've watched our parents struggle to make marriage work, and at the end of the day, we've concluded, you know, I don't think love is really for me. I'm just going to settle in my pain and despair. We do that. Sometimes we do it, we don't even realize it. The other day, somebody asked me, hey, George, I think it's a great mission to share hope in Jesus Christ, but what do we do for the people in Seattle that don't want hope or don't need it? Have you ever thought about that? That There are people that you work with or at school with you, they don't think they need hope. Life is good, right? I mean, just imagine you're a 29-year-old. You, you've got a job in Seattle, a high-paying job at South Lake Union. You get to ride on the light rail, reading your Kindle, looking out the window at majestic mountains. It's unbelievable. After work, you're going to go to Capitol Hill, plan the hike that you're going to go on this weekend or the Sounders game that you're going to go to. My life's good. Keep your hope. I'm doing fine. Thanks. Somebody else probably needs that, right? Here's the interesting thing. Sometimes you don't even know that you're living in despair because it's part of your culture and you bought the assumptions of your culture. This summer, I was uh, listening to an interview. Two uh, interesting people were reflecting on the life of David Foster Wallace. And, uh, and as they were talking about where we are as a culture, they started to get depressed. Just think about it. Economically, austerity measures around the world environmentally, we are cooking our planet right now. You know that. Socially, we're divided by our prejudices. Uh, politically, we have so much cynicism in our political system right now that we make jokes out of it, you know? Or um, uh, I just think about uh, international relations, uh, the conflicts and the hostilities and people who can't find a home in their own home and having to migrate to homes where people don't really want to receive them. So it's so easy, I think, to take all of that in and begin to just assume, boy, this world's got a lot of limitations and start to accommodate our hearts to those limitations. At that point, we're starting to settle. David Foster Wallace used to tell the story about two fish who greet one another, and one fish says to the other, hey, good morning, how's the water today? And the other fish says, what's water? Right? You probably heard that before, but the idea is that we're so steeped in the despair of our culture, it just becomes the way we think, the way we move. Have we settled? Well, Abram calls us to something so much more than that. The amazing thing, it's not surprising that, uh, that Terah would settle in Haran and never realize his prospect. What's amazing is that Abram leaves, that we read in verse 4, so he went. He took this promise, something so much more than a prospect. The prospect's really more like a wish. I hope things go well, but a promise is a, is a certainty. Here's the problem for most of us. I think most of us operate with Terah's definition of hope, not Abram's. Terah has a definition of hope that's closer to wish. Notice how we use the word hope. Notice how I use the word hope. Uh, we oftentimes say, well, I hope the Seahawks win next weekend. I hope the rain will come during the week, but not on the weekend. I hope George's sermon will be meaningful this week. You know, What are we saying? In all of those, we're saying, well, I wish, I wish, I wish this will happen. But I have no, I have no assurance. I really don't know. Well, I want you to, tell, to know tonight that the Bible never uses the word hope that way, not once. The English word has those two meanings, but the Bible, the biblical language does not. The biblical language around hope, if you look any lexicon of the biblical language, you'll find the first definition for hope is expectation. Right? That's why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.20, it is my eager expectation and hope. That's why Paul will oftentimes pair the word hope with the phrase, I am sure, or I am certain. 
intrinsic to this concept of hope is expectation, certainty in the Bible. The other aspect of, of the word hope is action. It's not passive, like, oh, I just wish. It's active. It engages us. Because I have this certain expectation, I do what I do today. Because I expect what I expect, I do what I do. It changes life today. I engage very actively in the world around me differently. See, what Abram has that Haran, uh, that Terah doesn't in Haran is a promise. And Abram believes that heaven is opening up to him, and therefore he's engaging this promise. If you want to remember hope, uh, let me give you two ways of thinking about it. Here's my definition. And if you go home with anything from this message tonight, I hope you'll hear this. This is hope. Hope is acting today on the basis of God's promise for tomorrow. Hope is acting today on the basis of God's promise for tomorrow. Please, that's so important for us to learn as a church because this is our mission to share hope in Jesus Christ. If, if the hope we share is just a wish, then how wishy-washy. We're just telling people, well, we're a happy people and we wish things well, right? No, that's not what, that's not what it means to share hope. Here's the other way of thinking about hope. If you want a little acrostic, thinking of the letters H-O-P-E. H-O, heaven opened. P-E, promise engaged. Heaven opened. Isn't that what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? Literally opened the storehouses of heaven to bless us with the abundance of his love in Jesus Christ. Jesus has entered into our limitations in order to throw them off. The Apostle Paul says, Abram believed in the one who could bring into existence the things that don't exist. Look at that. That's Romans 4.17. He says that Abraham believed in the one who could bring life out of death. Yes, he's got limitations, but God's got more. Heaven's been opened. The kingdom is here. And the promise engaged means I can live with that today. I can step into that. I can step out with that. I can reorient my life in a culture of despair in a way that demonstrates the life-giving nature of hope. God's blessing. So Abraham went, not because the future didn't look impossible, uh, but because God had promised to do the impossible in and for him. Friends, God has made the same promise uh, to me and to you. So let's think. Your life tomorrow is never determined by the limitations of your life today. Well, what are our limitations? Would you just think for a moment? What are your limitations? What did you bring with you to church? What are you trying to dig out of you, your family? What are the limitations perhaps that we share as a community because we're living in a culture of despair and we've steeped in it so long we can't even see it anymore? What needs to exist in my life that doesn't right now exist that Jesus promises to bring? What would it take to grab a hold of Jesus' promise for us and go with that promise? What would it look like for us to begin to live with heaven on earth today as Jesus asked us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Let me illustrate this finally with, with two uh, conversations that I had just last week. I think these, I hope these will give you, I wish these will give you a picture of what it looks like to have hope in your life. The first conversation was with a physician at Children's Hospital. This is a brilliant young man that I met just randomly in a coffee shop a little while ago. And when we got talking, he found out that I was a follower of Jesus. He said, hey, you know what? I would love to have coffee with you. Would you be willing to set something up? And we did. So we had coffee just last week. 
And he's on this faith journey, and he said, George, um, you know, the hardest thing for me as I think about God to understand is how God would allow children to suffer. So he works at Children's Hospital. Sees this the worst kind of suffering in, in children all the time. So he said, you know, I have these days where I, I go back and forth. On some days, uh, I look at that and I go, there's, there's just no way you can reconcile that, that kind of pain in a child and a loving God. I just can't put them together. Then I have other days where I actually think, you know, the outrage that I feel around kids who struggle and suffer that way seems to be a reflection of a loving God. I mean, to what am I appealing when I say this is wrong, if not some standard of right and goodness and love in God? Because I just go back and forth between these two. And I said, I totally get it. I, you know, that's really hard. I, I'm glad I don't work with kids in so much pain as you do. I'm proud of you. But then it occurred to me, the story of Abram. I said, you know, do you know the story of Abram? And, you know, what I'm just learning this week is that it begins with the death of a child, a son. It begins with two parents in absolute despair. And then there's a woman who'd love to have a child, but who can't have a child. And I just wonder what it means that God is that kind of God who comes to bless at our deepest, darkest points of pain, where there are no answers, but perhaps there is a solution in him, in Jesus, the one who brings life out of death. Maybe that's what God is doing. And as we're talking, I can just see the rims of his eyes begin to get red and there are tears appearing in his eyes, tenderness. And I don't know all of what that means for my new friend, but what I do believe is that he was making contact with some hope at that point. There was something inside of him that was saying, maybe even though we haven't answered my question here today, maybe I realize that I don't have to settle in the pain and in the disappointment. Maybe I can step out of that into the promise of a God who is confronting evil with good and who is redeeming all things. So by the way, I'm very proud of those of you who work with children, uh, teachers, those who are caregivers. Many of you work at children's every day. Many of you volunteer through side by side. It's because you have that hope that you have the boldness to walk with people through such suffering. The other conversation I had is one in which you might have a little bit of interest yourself. About three years ago, we had a pastor here named Jason Santos, a very gifted young man who came to lead our youth ministry. But it was a time in the life of our church where it was very challenging to lead youth ministry. And I'll tell you, uh, quite frankly, it didn't go well. It didn't go well for, for Jason. And, and uh, I'll say, honestly, Jason and I got sideways in the process. Well, a couple weeks ago, I got an email from Louisville. It was Jason Santos saying, Hey, George, I'd love to come to Seattle. I'd love to get together with you. I'd really like to see if we could find some reconciliation. And I said, Oh, my gosh. Of course, I would love to get together with you. So we did last week. We had a cup of coffee. And I'll keep the details of our conversation confidential. But I want you to know it was the most beautiful experience of reconciliation. Jesus literally brought into existence something that didn't exist before that coffee, and that was friendship between two men who love Jesus and who serve him. It was spectacular. And I look at Jason across the table, and I go, man, what has happened to you? The growth and the maturity in your life is so evident. And I trust her. I pray that he could look across the table at me and see growth and maturity in my life that wasn't there either. We could honestly confess to one another what we had done wrong and wish we could take back. And then with hugs and tears in our eyes, we offered absolute heartfelt forgiveness to one another. It was just spectacular. And let me tell you why that happened. It happened because Jason had hope. 
Let me, let me explain that. Jason understands, he knows Jesus well enough to know that someday Jesus is going to reconcile all things to himself. That's a promise that we find in the Bible. That's where we're headed. All things will be reconciled to Jesus. Therefore, we will all be reconciled to one another through Jesus. And he says, if that's our future, I know how I can live today in reconciliation today. If Jesus is doing it then, why can't he do it today? He said the kingdom has come. See what? He was living with hope. And it was a beautiful thing. And you and I can experience that as well. Heaven is open, friends. Let's be the people that engage the promise of God. Well, today, God doesn't always overcome our limitations, but if we follow Jesus, he will always work through our limitations. Remember that this is really not about just getting a child. The promise isn't really a child. The promise is a blessing. No, the promise isn't really a blessing. The promise is to be a blessing. That is what it is. Abram is given the blessing of being a blessing to every family, to every broken and limited family on the face of the earth. Let's join him in the great legacy of that mission. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow our heads before you just to honor you. And some of us are going to take the opportunity to confess that we really have settled in Haran. We really have settled, without even knowing it, into our pain and disappointment and our expectations of you have gotten so low that you couldn't possibly give us a new future. So today we confess that and we want to repent of that, which means we want to turn around towards a future that only you can give us to receive your blessing and to live with hope. Thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit, as we talked about last week, the fullness of your presence and power, Jesus. Your Holy Spirit, Christ in us, the hope of glory. With that hope, send us out tonight, we pray, for your glory, Jesus. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.